You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. For a while now, there's been in American evangelicalism a growing sense that not all is well, that we've drifted, that we've lost touch with our world and ourselves. In our time, as in other times of instability, Jeremiah's have emerged, calling us to ask for the old paths, to seek the good way forward in the church's bright past. Which past is appealed to depends on the Jeremiah, the Church of Acts, or of the Reformation, or of camp meetings and sawdust trails. One old path that often goes unrecommended is that of the Christian Middle Ages. After all, for many self-conscious Protestants, the Middle Ages were when things went wrong. In his book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Chris Armstrong wants to counter that common notion. Instead, he thinks modern evangelicals, with the aid of their old friend C.S. Lewis, can discover in medieval Christianity a rich heritage, including remedies for their vices and roots for their virtues. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Chris Armstrong, author of Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis, published by Brazos Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Armstrong. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Well, before we delve into this book, there's a kind of larger context that I feel this book is sitting in that our listeners might not all be... uh, aware of. Some are probably familiar with the stirring in American evangelicalism in the past few decades that's uh, often called the ancient future movement. Uh, Is this book's project an extension of that? I don't know if I self-consciously intended it to be part of any movement. I've certainly appreciated Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Weber's work, Dan Williams, Christopher Hall, and others Mm -hmm. who have uh, moved forward this ancient future language and project. Um, of course, my observation is that it very often seems to end around the sixth century. There's a mm. certain nervousness of going beyond that, and that's a gap that I had intended to fill. So, in as much as I'm self-consciously involved in that project, it's really as uh, just addressing an obvious gap. Mm. So, should we have a medieval future movement as well? I don't know if that really rings off the tongue to say this ancient future. I'm I'm happy for medieval. I, I, I'm fairly sure that most modern folks think of medieval as just as ancient as ancient. So well, that's it, true. Well, it'll it'll do. Right. Well, early in the book, you identify what, in your analysis, is one of the defining traits of American evangelicalism. You call it immediatism. So, what is immediatism? How do you see it setting? The trajectory, the trajectory of evangel- uh, evangelicalism in America, uh, for good and for ill. Sure, um, it's an observation. I, I'm actually this is this is sort of my dirty secret behind writing this book. I'm an Americanist, not a medievalist. Hmm. Uh, I'm a medievalist by um, by sort of yearning in some sense, uh, but I think why uh, Bob Hosek at uh, Brazos had me write the book is that um, it does come out of a sort of diagnosis of um, mm. some, some issues and some lack in modern evangelicalism. And, and I really think of those in terms of uh, world engagement or world embrace or lack thereof. And, of course, we, can, we will get into the details of that as we're talking together. Mm. So what immediatism is, is my attempt to describe 
what I think is a pretty discernible and evident um, pattern in evangelical Protestantism today, which is a tendency to want to move really quickly to God and to think that there's really not much human mediation or sacramental mediation required to, to get there. Um, so first of all, let's think about that sort of directness, that immediateness. Um, what I mean by that is uh, really there are two main cases that I think of when I think of that directness. One is the case of worship. Um, we can go with the appropriately sweet strains of you know, worship or praise music behind us directly to the throne of God. We can have an encounter with him um, person to person, so to speak, um, without needing any elaborate ritual or priest craft, as the Protestant Reformation started to call it, or the Puritans. And um, it's just a direct thing, and, and anyone can go to it. There's a kind of uh, equal playing, uh, a level playing field. And then the second case would be an immediatism of Scripture. And you might think, well, Scripture is, is a mediation already. But I don't think often um, evangelicals think of it that way. They think of it as the plain and obvious truth that God has laid before us, the direct revelation, that all we have to do is open the book, look at it, and we can uh, encounter his truths uh, more or less directly and with clarity. Uh, any reasonable person can do that. And we're, what this sort of sets aside is the mediation of uh, traditional understandings, of theologians from the past, of long struggle, of even a hermeneutic complexity that, um, that uh, most biblical scholars recognize as being ineradicable. I mean, we, we, it, is, it is not always clear what a particular passage of Scripture means. There's plenty of room for interpretation, and we each do our own interpretation in our own locatedness. Um, mm. So our, our theology is by necessity contextual theology. Well, the evangelical immediatism pushes back on that, or really sometimes isn't even aware of those complexities, and simply says, nope, you open your Bible, and there you go. That's all you need. Um, I'm not really sure if, if they follow through on that, because by those lights, it might not be necessary to have a pastor. And of course, huh. some do go in that direction. Um, but that, in a nutshell, is really what I'm talking about when I talk about immediatism. Hmm. Now, not everything that you have to say about immediatism in uh, the, the, the chapter in which you're, you're particularly uh, kind of talking about our current situation. Not everything that you have to say about immediatism is is a is that is is a negative critique though. Exactly. Yeah. I I point out that um although I have to spend a chapter um defending tradition because tradition is one of the chief sort of means of mediation that I think is being uh lost to our detriment. I also spend a chapter talking about um, affective devotion, hmm. and uh, that is what we might call in more simple language a religion of the heart. Mm -hmm. um, I, see, I see evangelicals and medievals as really being involved in the same project here, which is uh, being aware of and wanting to defend um, the, the truth that there are times when we may, and, and modes in which we may come pretty much directly into God's presence. Uh, medievals thought it was fairly rare and took a lot of discipline to get there, but they would have affirmed that as much as any uh, sort of camp meeting evangelical today. This really is something that we can do. Um, I, I think medievals would have said, again, 
that this is rare enough so that in our daily Christian lives, we will lean on various other kinds of, for example, communal practice. I mean, mm-hmm. even the, you know, the, the 90 whatever percent of mystics in the medieval period who were monastics uh, did believe that you had to gather with the community. You still did the liturgy. You didn't do away with that. There were various kinds of disciplines. Uh, for most Western uh, monastics, it was Benedict's rule from the 6th century. And mm-hmm. all of those are kinds of mediation that help you get there. But the final goal, I think, is the same. The, the argument that a medieval and an evangelical might have about this is um, how, how short and direct is the way. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So your subtitle is Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis. So why C.S. Lewis? Why, why not just get straight into the Middle Ages? Why do you need Jack the Inkling to kind of Virgil for us <laughs> in our yeah, trek through the Middle yeah. Ages? Yeah, well, it's really, I, I mean, okay, so there's kind of two sides to the answer to this question. And one is, because medi- because evangelicals won't read a book about medieval stuff unless <laughs> it has the name C.S. Lewis on the cover. And that may sound kind of manipulative and feeling all of that. And if, it, if that were the only answer, this would not be a very good book. The other answer, however, is because Lewis was a modern person who, in his heart, and he said this of himself, really was in many respects kind of medieval. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he was not just a professional medievalist, although he was that. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals may skip lightly over that fact or not be aware of it as they go for his, you know, fiction or his apologetics. But he really was a professional medievalist, but he wasn't just a professional medievalist. He was also, uh, as I argue in the book, an intuitive uh, medievalist. He... Um, in all of his studies, literature and historical and spiritual and theological, he read what he read in order to live it. Hmm. And in order not only to examine, he used two, two terms that he got from another author, to um, enjoy or, and now I'm going to miss the second term, I have to go back, it is to enjoy or to contemplate. Right. Mm-hmm. So he uses the example of a sunbeam in a famous essay, uh, uh, Meditation in a Toolshed. He's in this toolshed. Here's this sunbeam coming down through a little hole in the wall. And he says, when he looks at it, you can see little dust motes floating around. Um, that's kind of the analytical or contemplative mode that many of us use when we're studying history, medieval history or theology or anything else at a university level with an analytical sort of stretch it out on the table, pin it down and have a look at it and see what we can find out. And he says, when he does that, he sees lots of dust motes floating around in a Sunday. That's the con- uh, contemplation. But enjoyment means that you take that sunbeam and you look along it and you see what it illuminates. And for him, what the, uh, I translate that to mean, and this is language he used too, that when you are reading history, when you're exposing yourself to tradition or from the things that other people have said before you, find out how to look along that sunbeam, find out Hmm. how to use those insights to become part of your equipment as you live your life. Um, And this was a very, for him, a very ancient practice. He was trained long before he was a Christian as a teenager under an atheist uh, tutor, Irish tutor named William Kirkpatrick, and he was trained in the classics. And what he learned early on was that um, the, the classical, the pagan philosophers from before Christ 
did philosophy not as an analytical discipline in the mode of contemplation, but as a way of life, as mm. a way of finding out how to live. And so the more substantial reason that I think Lewis is an important guide for us into things medieval, into medieval wisdom, as they say, or authentic faith, is that he has not only studied in the con uh, contemplative mode, but enjoyed and absorbed and made intuitive and made part of his own toolbox for living all that he learned there. And what's interesting is evangelicals read Lewis and they think, <clears throat> well, here we have an incredibly wise person who has seen clearly what there is to say, to see in, in Scripture, and perhaps by some genius of rhetoric has been able to express it so well that it, it strikes us in a new way and it gives us sort of new hope. Um, I think Lewis would be a little puzzled by this because what he thought he was doing was presenting the tradition. He <laughs> thought he was absorbing the tradition, whether it be early Christian or medieval Christian or Reformation or even stuff from <clears throat> years that were very recent to him, mm. and was only passing on kind of what he'd read. It helped that he had an eidetic memory and that he had an inclination <laughs> to read and a brilliant mind and, and loved old, old things and was fed by them. Uh, but in the end, I think this is why he makes a great guide for us. Mm. Are there some particular, um, some particular works of Lewis that you've uh, relied on um, in, in shaping our, the exploration in this book? Sure. Um, you know, one of the most obvious ones is probably the discarded image, and it's not mm -hmm. one that a lot of folks get to. It's a summary of lectures he gave in over many years as a professor of medieval and Renaissance studies, chair of, of medieval and Renaissance studies at Cambridge. He started his career at Oxford. He finished it at Cambridge. And I believe it's based on lectures from a course on medieval poetry. But he was giving his students backgrounds on the medieval mindset. Before mm -hmm. you can read medieval poetry, you know you have to look along that sunbeam. You have to know uh, what the people, what it was like to think as a medieval person. Mm -hmm. And so that's where he does that. And he does it in ways that sometimes escape us a little because he's throwing off Greek and Roman phrases like everyone knows what that means. Because <laughs> um, actually he's sitting in a class in Cambridge where pretty much everybody does know what that means. Right. But, you know there are footnotes and so forth. And if you can get through that, um, there's just some, some wonderful stuff in there about what it was like to think and even see as a medieval person. So that's a good one. Um, you know, really any book you read of his is going to, uh, is going to be full of things that come from his encounter um, uh, uh, with medieval sources. Um, his fiction in particular, uh, the, the Ransom Trilogy, Mm -hmm. And it seems odd to say it because it's, it's, a, it's a set of sci-fi books. It's mm -hmm. absolutely full of medieval worldview. He's, in a sense, trying to reconstruct an early and medieval Christian worldview from within a science fiction story, which is actually quite remarkable if you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you're going to read in That Hideous Strength, the third book, of actual medieval planets, uh, you know, and medieval... Uh, uh, the sort of Venus and, and Mars and the personalities that medievals gave to the Ptolemaic planets coming mm -hmm. down and influencing things going on in, uh, on Earth. If any of your listeners have read the uh, uh, book by Michael Ward, Planet Narnia, mm -hmm. they know that um, that same planetary, planetary way of talking about uh, virtues and values in our lives is, I think, actually, Ward is correct, is interwoven 
intimately into each of the seven books of the Narnia series. So in his fiction as well, you're going to you're going to find um, those things kind of value. There's many other books I could mention, mm-hmm. um, since as I say, you're going to find these kinds of elements in all of them. One of the one of the most obscure of his books that is really fun to read, although I haven't read it all the way through. It's a bit of a, a, a sort of a boat anchor of a book. <laughs> it is was really kind of his magnum opus, and most people don't know about it. It was called 16th Century uh, Literature, or what is it, English. Uh, it was in the Oxford History of English Literature series, 16th Century English mm-hmm. Literature. And um, in that, he spends a good amount of time in the opening chapters uh, talking about how the medieval mindset had set the stage for what later came in the 1500s to be the literature of that era. And there's, I use some of, some, of the, some of his observations in that book are not repeated elsewhere in his work and are worth, um, are worth looking at. Mm. I don't know if we have time for it, but there's a particular quote in there that has been kind of revelatory for me and for my students. Um, I'm not going to be able to give it to you verbatim because I don't have it memorized. But basically, he says medievals um, were uh, different from us in that they love to talk about great universals like justice, love, honor, friendship. And in the same breath, they would talk about the earthiest particulars like pigs, boots and boats and what he says is they don't spend a lot of time in the hazy cloud of middle generalizations the way that as he put it modern uh, civil servants or writers of leading articles do today <laughs> he's saying they they're 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 not in this sort of muddy <clears throat> excuse me muddy middle abstraction they're either really metaphysical and really talking about the great universals that matter most in our lives or they're talking about these particular things or, and they're doing it they're interweaving them um, one of the places I see that most clearly in medieval literature is in the, um, the mystery plays of the late um, medieval period in England, mm, mm-hmm. which, are, which replay the entire salvation story, uh, salvation history from creation to revelation, and with particular attention to the life and um, crucifixion and re- resurrection of Christ, but do so in incredibly earthy, sometimes even body terms. I mean, you've got the nailers play in the York cycle where the workers are carpenters and they're nailing him to the cross. They're nailing uh, 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 Christ to the cross and they're complaining and beefing about how hard the work are and they're using rough language and so on. Um, mm. The great playwright uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, picked that up in her um, series of plays, the man, uh, radio plays, The Man Born to be King, mm. that that earthiness and directness helps us to think about the incarnation. And by the way, the incarnation turned out to be pretty much the central theme of the book. I didn't know that when I started it, but it turned out to be the big thing that Lewis got from the medievals and the big thing that really characterized medieval theology and spirituality and that we're really missing today. Mm. Because evangelicals kind of go, um, yeah, it was important that, that God become a human being because we had to get to the cross. So let's talk about now the cross and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not this dwelling on how freakishly amazing it is that mm-hmm. the eternal God actually enters uh, not only the material world, but also the part of the material world that is us. And mm-hmm. when you pull that thread, I argue in the, toward the end of the book, when you pull that thread, you find that you are... Uh, amazed not only by the humanity of Christ, but by the humanity of humanity. 
and the many ways that God, just by virtue of the incarnation, affirms who we are and all that we do, culturally speaking, the arts, the sciences, our political lives, and so on and so on. Hmm. Excellent. Well, your whole book is an exercise in what has been called traditioning. Um, I still can't quite get used to yeah. that, using that as a verb. <laughs> yeah, it just means handing down. Right. Handing down. Well, you spend a whole chapter kind of setting your readers straight on what you mean by that. So what is tradition? How does one tradition well? Well, tradition in the Christian setting really means, I think, first and foremost, um, grappling with and understanding theologically and spiritually the witness, the apostolic witness and the witness of the, of the Hebrew Bible as well. Hmm. Um, and and not only understanding them, but thereby indwelling them and allowing them to affect you in your, for example, affective life and your moral life. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis, Lewis, in his essay, The Abolition of Man, which is an argument for um, the, the inborn natural law that uh, he says everyone shares. You don't have to be a Christian to have the sense that you shouldn't murder infants and that you should protect the innocent and so on. Um, argues that the reason we're having a lot of moral issues in, in modern society is that we are not formed in our, he uses the term chests, we're not formed in our, in our hearts. Uh, we, we don't read stories of virtue or see examples of virtue that form us. And um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a, a holistic approach and understanding to, um, to who we are as, as moral beings that the medievals very much had, and that they passed down through uh, tradition. Hmm. And you don't necessarily get that by reading, you know, a 2,000-year-old or five or 6,000-year-old in Passage's book, uh, or set of books, that comes to you in so many different genres, from so many different voices. Um, This really takes some fairly major interpretation to get there, and not only to get an understanding of that, but to learn how to indwell that and be formed in your affections, to be formed in your chest and in your moral actions by that. And that, I would say, is sort of my primary definition of tradition. I quote along the way Robert Louis Wilkin from his wonderful book, um, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. Wilkin says um, that while often we teach the uh, story of early Christian thought, as if it were a set of fairly abstruse arguments and counsels related to things like the Trinity and the two natures of Christ and, and whether you should have um, images, whether, whether you should venerate images or not. Uh, actually, what's going on and what's underwriting all of that is um, a love of God and a narrative of love that's continually interwoven with that. And that's in the tradition, too. And if we dissect and diminish the scriptural witness to a set of sort of intellectual principles, then we're, we're losing that. And, and that's one of the chief ways that I think the tradition is important. Tradition doesn't just come to us as a set of theological tomes, although we may think of it that way. It comes to us as art. It comes to us as liturgy. Uh, it comes to us as ecclesiology. How do we organize ourselves as churches? I'm not suggesting that today we need to do that as medieval said. Um, I think that would be step backwards in many cases, 
but we should at least attend to those ways and not behave as if they're completely up for grabs and completely pragmatic and in service of our immediatist desire you know, to, to get beyond mere, and here's where you know, the pejorative is often used by Protestants, mere human tradition to mm-hmm. what God really says, right? And so what we're doing is we're chucking out mediation, um, which I guess makes us pretty smart because the church for most of 2,000 years has decided it can't do without mediation. Right, right. The, the the sense that uh, Christianity is not reinvented in every generation, but there is a kind of family lineage that is actually important. That's it. That's it. And I just, I think we're in grave danger of having a do-it-yourself Christianity that, mm-hmm. that reinvents and does so poorly. Mm. Well, at the heart of this book is really a manifold treatment of medieval Christianity's thinking and feeling and doing, and uh, we don't really have time to go through all of it, but also I don't want to go through all of it, because then, dear listener, you would have no reason to go and read the book for yourself. <laughs> so... Oh, perish the thought. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm going to select, rather selfishly, because they interested me, uh, two topics to focus on. And I'm particularly interested in what medieval Christians have to teach us about getting merciful and about getting passionate. That's that's what the the chapters sure. in this section are. Yeah. Um, uh, getting adjective. So, how did yeah. the Middle Ages perform and even invent the acts of social mercy as we know them? Sure. The subtitle of that you're referring to chapter six, getting merciful is. Mm-hmm. why medievals invented the hospital. So he's got yeah. a nice concrete story to tell here. And um, it's a little bit of an overstatement to say medievals invented the hospital. Uh, at least the first kind of proto-hospital would have been uh, in the 4th century, an institution created by Basil the Great, who saw mm-hmm. the need for um, for succor to those who were uh, in deep poverty and couldn't help themselves when... And when the frequent plagues of the time would come through, for, for example, mm-hmm. um, Rodney Stark uh, has observed that um, when Christians notably took care of each other, and this was something that pagans notably did not do, mercy was not even a virtue in the, in the sort of pagan mindset, mm-hmm. um, people took notice and realized that they could uh, they would receive something in the Christian community that they could not get in the larger um, uh, culture of the Roman Empire in those early uh, years and centuries. And uh, he further observes that if you simply give food and water to someone who's suffering in a plague or a pestilence, rather than running the other direction and leaving those people to kind of rot in the gutter, um, <laughs> you increase their chance of survival by 60%. And so you didn't have to have any great medical knowledge. You simply had to have a sort of level of basic human care, which frankly, through much of the early history of the hospital, was about all you got. There wasn't much. And mm. some of it was, as you know, a little bit of medical history, uh, they used to bleed people, as thinking that was a really good idea. Um, Washington, uh, George Washington died because they still thought it was a good idea in the, uh, in the, in the 1700s. So... Um, uh, this was not actually a good idea, but the many other ways in which the early and medieval Christians cared for people did uh, certainly help them. Now, the question you're asking is about really mercy. Um, uh, you know, what's the line between the Christian story, the Christian gospel, 
and the virtue of mercy, and then this enactment of mercy in something mm. called the hospital. And uh, so the first point to make about that is, is the one I just made, which is that this was an unusual virtue in the uh, early Roman Empire when the church was first growing. Um, uh, ver- uh, mercy was seen almost universally in uh, Roman culture as a weakness. It was something you, if, if someone wasn't going to survive, uh, well, that's just what the fates had, uh, had lined up for them. And uh, you, you were busy, you know, making a way for you and your family and, you know, maybe not even sometimes your family. When, you're, when your parents got old, you might leave them out in the street. Um, this is not an exaggeration. I have several uh, uh, excellent sources for this, which I cite. Uh, uh, there's a wonderful history of the hospital by a man named Gunther Rissa. Um, the work of Gerald Allenson is very good, and the work of Gary Ferngren is very good on this. And what these books um, portray is a, um, a kind of Matthew 25 or Matthew 22 and 25 awareness that the call on Christians to love their neighbor as themselves in the kinds of concrete ways described as Matthew 25, uh, it, it described in Matthew 25 things like, you know, um, water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, visiting the sick, which is mm-hmm. named. Um, uh, these become the seven corporal mercies, as they're so-called in the, um, in the medieval tradition, uh, with the addition from the book of Tobit, the um, pseudepigraphal book uh, of Tobit, um, uh, or pseudo-canonical, rather. Um, Deuterocanonical, there we go. I really yes. have been to seminary and, and taught at <laughs> seminary as well. Um, that that uh, burying your dead was the seventh that was that was mm-hmm. added. Mm-hmm. But these were these very, again, earthy, particular, physical ways of caring for people. And um, you know, they looked to the Book of James, "Faith without works is dead," and they said, um, "Okay." Uh, God has loved us with an amazing mercy and that while we were still yet sinners, he, he saved us. And he's giving us a pretty clear roadmap, not only through the words of passages like I mentioned, but the life of Christ. who spent a lot of time running around physically healing people mm-hmm. um, that, that there might be a job for us to do here at the church. Um, a common misunderstanding of the early and medieval church is that they assumed that the bodily life really didn't count for very much, and that if a body did get sick, it was probably a manifestation of, I don't know, demonic possession or some spiritual um, uh, ailment, and would only be addressed that way. Um, That's actually not the case. From the very earliest years, uh, again, there was this awareness that basic nursing care was really important, and also a high valuation of the human bodily life, Hmm. that it was something that God had created, and it needed to be cared for, with the best wisdom that we could know in, in herbs or cutting, as they called early surgery. That doesn't sound very encouraging, I know, and <laughs> probably wasn't, um, and bleeding and things like that, but also just by basic care. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the earliest kind of care happening in simply in networks of churches. If you were sick, you went to your local church. Then you have Basil starting to say, well, maybe we could do something larger and institutional. Uh, this is post-Constantine, so the church has become a public institution at that point and begins to feel a public responsibility and to build institutions of mercy. And then the way that the hospital develops through the medieval period is within, largely within monasteries and later within lay quasi-monastic organizations, where you would come in as an outsider, you didn't pay anything, 
um, it was assumed that most people, that the people who really needed this help most were those who were poor. So this was always, through the whole history of the church, a kind of medical philanthropy. And you would come and you would be served, not both bodily and spiritually. So if you did begin to sicken and it looked like you were going to die, the monks would gather around both sides of your bed and, and sing hymns and encouragement and help your soul cross over into that more finally important and, and ultimate uh, realm of eternity with God. Um, so it's, it's really quite remarkable to read the story. And um, a window into this, every chapter has a little C.S. Lewis in it, mm -hmm. is a small essay that Lewis wrote. I forget the volume that it's in, but it's simply called Some Thoughts. He had been invited by a group of nuns, Irish nuns, who were running a hospital in Ireland, modern hospital, to come and give some thoughts. And he said, he opens up with the story of Lazarus, and he said, here's how much God cares about our lives, our human lives, our bodily lives. I mean, Jesus wept over Lazarus, and he he finally brought him back. He didn't do that with everyone. Um, but that weeping, that, and that pain of sharing the pain that we undergo in our physical lives was really significant for Lewis. And then Lewis says, now Christianity, if you look at it from one perspective, you might think it was one of the great sort of anti-material religions, that it was all about spirituality, like maybe Buddhism or something like that. Or if you look at it from another perspective, it might seem almost uh, like a fertility cult or, a, or a, a, you know, some sort of a, a appeasing the gods and, and, and going in a more material direction. Mm -hmm. um, because it has both of these dimensions. Because, as I argue in the book, the spiritual and the material are held closely together, Mm -hmm. Nowhere more, again, than in the doctrine of the Incarnation and the, the living truth and story of the Incarnation. Mm. So those are some of the themes. Uh, we, I talk a little bit in the chapter as well about the 13th century explosion of the hospitals, and what drives that is a kind of theological movement that begins to connect the dots between the passion devotion that was going on at the time, the intensifying uh, desire to reflect on in art and in, in worship and in private devotion, the events of the passion and how Christ shared our suffering in that. Um, taking that sense of Christ's mercy for us in the midst of suffering by sharing our suffering and actualizing that through um, uh, often, as it turned out, either uh, going and working in a hospital is a kind of penitential thing to do that would get you closer to God as you minister to those who were poor and sick. You became, you were ministering to Jesus, because that's what Matthew 25 said, but mm -hmm. also actualizing it through giving, through leaving your estate to a local hospital. And the hospitals at that point, 13th century, 14th century, uh, grow and grow and grow and multiply all across the European landscape. And it comes out of that deeply theologically and spiritually, uh, theological and spiritual uh, impulse of mercy. Of, of the compassion of God to us, and therefore, in turn, our compassion to our fellow humans and to Christ in them. Mm. Well, and, and created a kind of uh, a kind of trajectory that we sometimes don't even notice. And where I live, most of the hospitals have some denominational name appended to them. Right. You know, there's the right. reason. Very often Catholic, but not always Lutheran, Salvation Army, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, Methodist, whatever, but uh, mm -hmm. that largely that, secularized all now. In most of those cases, true. you won't find very many people of that background still on the board. I think the last 
there was an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago about the last six or seven nuns in the in the country who were actually acting as as hospital um, as as heads of hospitals, and that mm-hmm. was a major shift over 50 to 100 years. Yeah. Um, so it has secularized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not suggesting we can go back and we should all, you know, churches should be running hospitals today. But I think as with many areas that have become secularized in our lives, we miss um, the spiritual significance of, of the things that happen in a hospital and mm-hmm. our own Christian history of actualizing our faith beyond words or beyond, you know, simple actions of, of giving alms or things like that. And, and really in the book, as you know, I treat this in area after area. The sciences have significant, are, are essentially built, the foundation for the scientific revolution is built in the medieval period. Mm-hmm. Um, the arts, well, I mean, you just go to a museum that features medieval art. Um, it's, it's astounding, especially church architecture, as you know, and sculpture mm-hmm. and so forth. And you can go, go on and on. But I'm probably getting off topic. What else would you like me to talk about? <laughs> well, you're not. Uh, you're you're on all of your topics. Um. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's just like asking somebody about their dissertation. Ex- you know, I spent six years writing the thing, so I will tell you more than you ever wanted to know. Well, I'm I I'm I'm willing to have that conversation. Um, Dear listeners, as, as as he suggests, there's there's so much here that we're only able we're only being able to glance at tangentially. So again, read it all. Um, you alluded to this before when you talked about uh, how the 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 hospital movement in the the in in the Middle Ages, um, kind of coming out of a a, a realization of of how their their um, devotional practices that are directed at the passion um, mm-hmm. are then leading them to kind of rethink the acts of mercy in particular ways. Yeah. In chapter 8, you you actually title it Getting Passionate uh, and looking to the church of the uh, the Middle Ages for, uh, for heart religion, really. So what do evangelicals miss if we assume, as we often do, that the Church of the Middle Ages was mainly defined by a kind of dead ritual. Yeah, I well, again, it's this it's this desire to have an encounter with the living God, and it is mm-hmm. deep in the history of the Church. I mentioned Robert Wilkin; he talks about the presence of love in theology as essential. Uh, in fact, the theologian who uh, looms over the entire medieval period, although he's a little earlier, uh, Augustine of Hippo, Mm -hmm. uh, you can easily, and many commentators do, summarize his entire theology and his entire approach to Scripture as an approach of love. Mm -hmm. If, for example, you interpret Scripture in a certain way, uh, a particular Scripture in a certain way, and it is inconsistent with um, an image of God as a loving God, you've got a problem. Right, and you need to rethink that interpretation. Um, he famously uh, talks about his conversion in the Confessions in very intensely emotional terms. Uh, he even cries out, "Well, first of all, there's the famous one: our hearts are restless until they rest in God." The heart mm-hmm. language itself indicates the importance of of, of love in that scheme, uh, an analogy of human love that is often used. Um, we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. And then he also even says, inebriate me, O God, which kind of, sh- I kind of 
stopped reading for a moment when I saw that the first time. I thought that was a little bit outrageous in terms of language. But that tradition does continue throughout uh, the medieval uh, period. And um, I talked about the analogy of love. So let's look at that for a moment. Origin, generally uh, considered to be the first, he's a third century figure, 200 AD, mm -hmm. uh, the first systematic uh, studier and teacher of, of scripture, right? I mean, there had been apologists before, before that who were making particular arguments to defend Christianity against the persecutors, but, but he, was, he was saying, no, we need to read all of scripture and try to understand it um, in its fullness. Uh, he interpreted the Song of Songs as an allegory or an analogy to the relationship between Christ, uh, the soul, the human soul, and Christ. And this was picked up and repeated again and again from then on. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, an early medieval figure, picks mm -hmm. that up and preaches, I don't know, some crazy amount of sermons on the Song of Songs, something like 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and this captivates the medieval imagination that this otherwise fairly oddball book that seems to describe a, a fairly heated human relationship between, you know, Solomon and somebody, um, uh, uh, you know, what is that doing in there? Uh, it doesn't even mention <laughs> God. And, and yet when you see it in this way, suddenly it kind of explodes and you have this, this um, sense, which was very much, I think, affirmed and magnified by people's actual experience that this is the kind of relationship you're on. And you're not, when you, when you deal with a Christian God, you're not, um, signing on to a kind of uh, contract to agree to these beliefs and do these moral things, and that's all that it's about. You are dealing with a living God who cares you for you, who loves you, and the scriptures you're reading. I mean, Hosea. The whole this the whole image there is that Hosea is taking this unfaithful wife back again and again, and. It's explicitly said, this is the way God is with us. It's mm. exactly like this, as if we were in this romantic sexual relationship. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. And we're continually leaving him, and he's continually taking us back. Mm. Um, or, you know, you go to the New Testament, and there are, there are plenty of other passages that point in the same direction. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Paul goes so far as to use marriage as an analogy for the Church mm. in Ephesians. Um, and, and so... We have it on pretty good authority that this really does reflect the reality of what we're involved in as Christians. And what the medievals do is, and again, I think this really comes back to their focus on the incarnation and on who we are as embodied people, which means also affect. And by the way, you notice the word feeling has both a, a bodily meaning, right? You touch something and you feel it, and an emotional meaning. So our bodies and our emotions are very deeply sort of tied and integrated. Mm -hmm. And the medievals, as you, as you know, as is obvious uh, from, you know, looking at their cathedrals for nothing else, um, believe that the physical dimension, the material dimension, was a crucial dimension to attend to. Mm -hmm. um, the bodily life was crucial to attend to, and that meant the emotions that go with it as well. And so their devotional practice 
Um, you know, sometimes more than others. I say a lot in the book, medieval this, medieval that, and I drive medievalists crazy because they say, well, no, in the 12th century <laughs> period in England when it was not. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm going on good authorities here. I mean, I've, I've read my stuff. I've done my homework. Show me where I'm wrong. I agree by saying the medievals do this or that. It's, it's a bit of a generality or a lot of a generality, but this is a popular book for popular audiences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, look at the footnotes, there's lots of stuff in there. If you want to go farther, what I hope it does is open the door that you can go farther. Right. But in any case, you know, setting that aside, I, I really see in, uh, as a kind of golden thread, at least throughout this period, um, the affirmation of our bodies and our emotions, which are closely tied in practices of genuflection, of, of imposition of holy water, of, um, and you can go on and on of crossing yourself, of fasting. Um, this is a point I bring up in the book that once you affirm the importance of the body to our spiritual lives, which we most definitely don't affirm today as modern evangelicals or very rarely do, then you also have to realize that there's a discipline of the body that needs to come. And that opens the door to certain uh, disciplines. Nothing like, I'm not suggesting that we flagellate ourselves, but that fasting, for example, may actually be an important thing to do, or maybe even abstaining from sex. Maybe not for our whole lives, but for certain periods of time, et cetera, et cetera. So um, please read here, footnote, and I do this several times during the book, I would not go to the medieval period as a guide to how to deal with sex. <laughs> there were a lot of, and Augustine is part of the problem here, because he's fairly messed up. As a former sex addict who becomes a Christian, he really has some, he, he has very little nice to say about this. So obviously he had to admit that God created it, but in any case. Well, neither so, did the sorts uh, if of... If I may be allowed, <laughs> if I may be allowed one more comment here, yeah. uh, just on this affective devotion chapter. Uh, one of the places where this becomes sort of the richest and more, most involved, and maybe also sometimes a little bit bizarre, is in the passion devotion of the Middle Ages. Um, and when you, if you ever want to see the film, uh, The Passion of the Christ, by Mel Gibson, you'll see, um, you know, he's a Catholic and has, and, and, and is pulling threads in this tradition that again, deals with the emotions and the bodily reality so starkly and so full on and makes that part of the, um, the important ways that we are, uh, that we come to him, that we come to him devotionally, that we come to him as, as those who are lovers of God and who are beloved by him. Well, we're coming down to time, and you finish the book with a call for evangelicals to embrace, uh, embrace asceticism and something like monasticism, going back to that um, uh, medieval recognition of the importance of the body. So what are you calling us to? What are you not calling us to? What would it look like for us, for us evangelicals now to be monastics, be ascetics? Well, here we come back again to the theme of the Incarnation, which, as I said, as a surprise to me, turned out to be really the central theme of the book. Mm. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a pretty smart guy and uh, a historian I trust, uh, said that the Incarnation was the linchpin of medieval theology. It was right there at the center of everything else. And the argument I'm making at the end of the book is that, again, the Incarnation gives us a heightened sense not only of the humanity of Christ, but of our own humanity helping us realize the spiritual significance of the things we do in the flesh. Um, and that, I think, must, if we're paying attention to it, if we've experienced that, 
lead us to a renewed spiritual discipline that attends to our bodiliness. And the way that that's been done in the Christian tradition is through asceticism, as you say. And that has largely been preserved in the monastic tradition. Now, there's a distinction here. You can be an ascetic and not a monastic. You can be a lay person. Uh, there were many in the last centuries of the medieval period who, for example, wore a hair shirt to remind them not to become too comfortable in their fleshly life. A hair shirt is the skin of an animal turned inside to your skin, and it's extremely uncomfortable, and you're not going you're you're not, not to be able to be comfortable in your flesh as you do that. Um, I personally would not recommend that discipline. Uh, but what it points to is a heightened awareness that the pleasures and impulses and distractions of our bodily lives can throw us off base if we're trying to live well to God in the world. We can become overcomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think to have to even make that argument in modern America feels a little weird. I think most Christians on some level are aware that they struggle in certain areas. They want to sit on their couch, enjoy their ice cream, and watch Netflix rather than maybe go read their Bibles or whatever. I mean, to mm-hmm. use a, a banal example. Um, and what, what I think we find when we attend to that other region of our humanity that, again, most of us have dismissed as spiritually irrelevant, that is, the bodily life, is that... Um, Something happens when we kneel or prostrate or uh, ourselves or um, fast or you know, just uh, intentionally sort of watch and discipline the things of the flesh, even just eating less, even drinking less. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we're struggling with that. That is a kind of asceticism. Um, I was a young adult Christian convert and about the age of 23, and you're going to hear my Audubon clot go in the background, maybe in my little birdie. <laughs> but um, I, I was a young adult uh, Christian convert, and uh, I really liked my beer. And I could find nothing in Scripture that said that I shouldn't have my beer. And so I, was, I quite happily went on drinking more beer than I should have. Hmm. And at one point I was kind of thinking, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with this, and I, I'm not sure why, because I don't see anything the Bible says I, I can't. I mean, I see stuff in Proverbs about it's not good to, to be drunk, and you know, beer is a brawler, and wine is a mocker, and all that. But I said, God, really, I can't have a few beers once in a while? And, and basically the sense I got in prayer was, um, if you're experiencing it as uncomfortable and as a distraction from me, then you should do something about it if you're hmm. serious about this relationship. If it's getting between us, the same as a wife might say to a husband, if your drinking is getting between us, you got to do something about it. That's what I heard from God. Hmm. And so, I mean, I, I wasn't a full-out al- alcoholic or anything like that, but I really felt I heard from God not to do that. That's an ascetic discipline. And it may not be one that's listed in sort of medieval practice, uh, you know, the monastics were pretty fond of their wine, and most of those monasteries had pretty well-stocked cellars. I don't know. Probably they had the odd brother who really would sneak down there and had to be disciplined and so on. But that's ascetic. All it is, all asceticism means is you attend to things in your bodily life that are distracting you from your relationship with God. Mm. And uh, it really almost doesn't matter what it is. And I would include watching Netflix. I mean, that's a physical thing. That's something you do with your body, with your eyes, um, that, that it that maybe elicit certain passions in you, 
I had to years ago stop watching 24 when it came out because I got I was my whole body was vibrating by the time I was finished. I thought <laughs> this is like throwing me off my day. I mean, it, it's an amazing show. I just can't watch Keith or Sutherland, Sutherland put another knife to another bad guy's neck. It's just it's killing me. So, you know, you have to discern that in your own life, really. But mm-hmm. that's really all I'm doing there. And then the monastic dimension that I'm calling people to is an awareness that spiritual disciplines must also have a communal dimension. Mm. Um, there are disciplines of humanity, uh, sorry, humility, obedience, things like that, that you don't get to do by yourself. You've got to do them with other people, and they're essential. And if you don't deal with them, you end up in their obverse. You end up in pride or, uh, you, you know, um, uh, vices like that. So uh, those are some fairly simple points. I'm drawing a lot in that chapter with a man I'd recommend on monasticism, uh, Columbus Stewart, who's at St. John's up in, um, in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written a wonderful short book uh, called, I think, Prayer and Community. It's just about the Benedictine way. It's in an Orbis series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned from uh, Benedict's short little rule. And uh, there's a lot I say in that chapter, but we don't have time. Excellent. Buy the book. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Do buy the book. Well, thank you, thank you very, very much, Dr. Armstrong, for uh, coming on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles and helping us get medieval. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and I hope that we will think in future of getting medieval not in the terms that it was spoken in the movie Pulp Fiction. <laughs> generally means beating the crap out of somebody, <laughs> uh, but as something that potentially is positive. People who are interested in the book might want to go check out medievalwisdom.com medieval-wisdom.com a hyphen for those of you who are younger and have never heard the term is a dash <laughs> so blessings I hope you will take a look um, uh, we'd love to hear from you if you read the book I can be found easily on the Wheaton College website and uh, again David thanks so much for this opportunity to come and talk to your listeners I really appreciate it excellent well, dear listeners, that's all that we have time for today. We've been talking with Chris Armstrong, author of Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis. Uh, the book is available from Brazos Press, and there will be links to that in the show notes. If you'd like to leave us feedback on this episode, you can post in the comments to the show notes on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org, uh, Christian when they post there. You can also send email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post on Facebook. We like that, too. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.